welcome to another edition of Video Marketing and Mayhem. I'm here with Vincenzo. Thank you, sir. And Vincenzo, help me out with the last name because I don't know if that's a Brooklyn accent you have. No, or... it's not a Brooklyn accent. Okay. It's just Ruggieri. Okay, there you go. But okay. you can call me Vincenzo, that's fine. Okay, it's Mr. V. Okay, So that's uh, Vincenzo is a documentary video producer and his plan is to tour America in an RV and go to each state and make a video in each state. And so the reason, again, we called it Video Marketing and Mayhem, so Vincenzo is using video to market, I would say to market to America, and the revenue would be generated from people who would sponsor you. So let's rewind to when you were, you know, in your younger years. How did you get started? Tell me your journey. How did you get started in the video business? Like what, 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 was, what was the day where you're like, you know what, I'm going to be the great Vincenzo video producer? Okay, that's going to rewind a few years back, I guess. Quite a few. Yeah. So I basically grew up in a, a town called Steinfort. That's in the center of Europe, in Luxembourg to be exact. My parents are Italian. They immigrated to that country in around the 50s. I was born in 61 and um, did my journey going to school like everybody else and always realized that I was not exactly like the others in every which way possible. And when I reached the age of coming out of high school, I really decided I'm going to do photography and video. That was really my my passion. And what year was that about? Uh, That was about uh, 75 to 79. Okay. 1975 to 1979. And uh, the luck of the draw has won it that I I met a, just like you did when you met me, you said people sometimes meet for a reason. I met this cameraman from a, a, a channel station in France. His name was Yvon Campon. I will never forget that name. And he was a cameraman. And as you know, in those days, the VCRs and the cameras was a little bit bigger than today. And um, we met at a camping. Uh, just we, They were camping there and shooting. And uh, he invited me the day after to go there and, and just learn everything I could possibly learn. And my first job was actually carrying his VCR attached to his camera. And I did that for quite a while. And I've learned probably the best education possible for a cameraman to learn because this guy was an absolute ace. He was, his photography was completely different from anything I saw those days on television. And still today, I have learned so much from that person in the way I, I, I shoot and put my camera together when I shoot. And that's how it started. And from there on, I just kept going. Uh, bought my own editing unit. I worked for the news stations around the planet, uh, BBC, ABC, CBS, National Geographic. They sent me all over the place shooting. And when I got a little bit of money, automatically I put that money into equipment. As you can know, and as you know yourself, the equipment those days was big and heavy and expensive. expensive. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah. I wished I had those days what I have today. And, uh, but that was not the case. But anyway... It puts me back to the old school that I had, and I don't regret it because it makes us the best editors in the world compared to what the people do today. So the reason why, this is Frank, owner of Custom Video Productions, and the reason why I interview people and I'm doing this podcast is it's 
what's changed is the, the price of equipment. It's come down quite dramatically. But what hasn't changed is the ability to tell a compelling story and to be able to understand what that vision is. So <clears throat> again, taking you back to your, to your younger years, what did you think when you got into this business? What did, what did you see yourself doing? What, was, what, what, what made you tick? What was your passion? Just right there, like I told you, shooting and editing and making pictures come to life in a way that very few words were necessary to explain what I showed. In every piece of video that I produced, it could be a 30-second a commercial or a long documentary or washing a car. It didn't matter. Whatever video I shot, every person that looked at that video, including myself, could understand what was the video about. So give me an example. So let's say, I don't know if you were here in the USA or you were overseas in your home country. Tell me, tell me a little story about uh, what you were most proud of, what went perfect. I mean, I believe that every production I, man I made went perfect because if not, I wouldn't have been paid for it. And secondly, the customer wouldn't have the video. So I think that every shot of everything I sold or was paid for went perfect obviously, because I never had a customer returning the product to me and saying I want to be reimbursed. So every video I shot went perfect. There's no doubt. So take me back to the time where you're asked to do a project. What, 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 what was your favorite project to do? And what were the challenges? I believe that the most challenging project I've ever was asked to produce was actually not exactly that young was a little bit later in my camp, in my career, is um, I was I was shooting in Austria in 1990, and we were on the Austrian Alps. We were shooting in glaciers, preparing for a shoot for a company about tires, and um, a a BBC producer was there at the same hotel we were that night, and um, he said to me. He was watching us shoot. He had a crew shooting themselves. And, uh, and then he asked me, he said, uh, would you be interested about a project we have to do next February in Alaska? And, and I looked at him and I said, wait a minute. You're asking me if I would be excited to go to Alaska? Of course I would love to go there. I've never been to Alaska. I've never, I've never left Europe for that matter, going that direction overseas. So, you know, sometimes people talk and then you don't hear anything anymore, especially in our business. A lot of people talk a lot. And so I just left, he left, and nobody heard anything about anybody. But a few months later, it was January of 1990, I get a call, and it was him. And I was very surprised. I said, wait a minute, I thought you forgot me. He said, no, 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 I am ready. I got a ticket in my hand. I got a beta cam camera, a tripod, lights, microphone, and everything to give you. I want to send you to Alaska to shoot two adventurers from Britain to go and do this adventure called the Iron Dog Gold Rush Classic, which is a snow machine race that goes from Nome to Anchorage. That's 1,049 miles through the most incredible country you can possibly imagine along the Adidas Trail. How old were you at the time when you got asked that? I was 30 years old. Now, were you married, kids, and all that? No, I was divorced. I was living by myself already for almost seven years, alone, and I was ready to go. I was ready to go. I said, I cannot wait. And on February 22nd, 1990, 
I land in Anchorage Airport. So obviously this is memorable to you because you know the exact date. Oh, absolutely. The exact time. It was 40 below zero at the airport of Anchorage. And you walk down the plane. There's not like a fancy bridge. You walk down the plane. You walk onto the ice. And I look at the John, the photographer that was with me from BBC, and I said to him, I'm going to come back here. That's what I told him, the exact words. And we walked down the airport, and there was a person that received us. And uh, he now, took... Where did you where did you come from? Where were you at the time? From Luxembourg. Okay, and what was the temperature there? Oh, it was winter. I was not very warm, but it was not 40 below zero. <laughs> so it was a big change oh, in absolutely. temperature. But it was so amazing because it was so dry. You could cut... It was dry. And when it's dry, you don't feel so cold, you know. And I loved it. I was, I was not in a five-star hotel. I was in a little hut. I still have pictures of me stoking the fire, actually at that temperature by myself in a little hut. And uh, I stayed there the days that I needed to shoot this Iditarod, I mean this Iron Dog. And uh, then I flew with Alaskom to Galena at a checkpoint. And that's where I saw my first Northern Lights. And that was spiritually life-changing. I was on the Yukon River. It was frozen solid. And at 3 a.m., the pilot of the plane wakes me up and he says, you have to see this. And I go outside and there are the, the northern lights above the mountains, above the Yukon, and I couldn't believe it. I thought I was in a movie. Uh, it, it was amazing. It was abs- I stood out there for an hour watching these northern and lights. what temperature was it? It was 40 below zero. It was amazing. And yet you stood there for an hour Oh, absolutely. It was, it was insane. I, I mean, I could not stop looking at this sky dancing with these colors and the... It was absolutely amazing. I, I will never forget that moment, never. And um, yeah, and that was my journey. And when the journey was finished, I flew back home. And Wait, wait, we're leaving out a big... So tell us about the journey. You're in Alaska. Yeah, uh, the journey was shooting these two guys, making it up the hill. I mean, making it up that thing. The sad part was these guys was a bunch of whips because they didn't make it. They didn't, they didn't even make it halfway. They didn't even make it halfway. So uh, my shooting journey that was supposed to last as long as it did was stopped because these guys didn't make it. They scratched halfway. The machines broke down. They almost died, actually, because they, they were just not prepared for this um, journey. They thought they were going to go to Austria or, or, or Switzerland and, and live the life. Making a journey of 1,000 miles through the desert of snow and ice that is Alaska is not for everybody. And if you're not prepared, you are history. And I can talk about experience now because I've spent 10 years there after that journey. 10 years. And it was, I have learned things in Alaska that no school in the world will ever teach you, ever, about survival. And, and these guys were not done. They were not made to make this journey. They were not made for it. So again, this video podcast is video marketing and mayhem. That's, I guess that's part of a little bit of the mayhem of production. Uh, what were, some, what, were, what were some of your challenges while you're out there with Betacam equipment? Now, remember, Betacam equipment basically is you have, uh, was it all one-piece camera? Of course. Okay. So the camera ba- back then were like $65,000 for these cameras that you put in, I think, a 30-minute tape into correct. the camera. That is correct. And then you had these batteries that they called them bricks because they were... They were well, I actually had NP1s. I didn't have the, the Anton Sony slip-in MP1s. Yeah, the NP1s. I had right. two blocks in the back to slip in. Yep. The thing is, those batteries at those temperatures, they were not lasting very long. And but Sony did a great job preparing the grease on the on the on the on the lens to make sure it wasn't freezing. The equipment was in top shape. The only thing is, I could never put the equipment inside. That was impossible because the condensation. 
between minus 40 and plus uh, whatever was inside, once the condensation grabbed your lens, you were not able to shoot for whole day. So the, the equipment was constantly outside, constantly. I could never bring the camera inside, impossible. And, and the tape, the same thing. You could not have tapes freeze up, you know. So they were always protected in our jackets and warm pads. and all, I mean, it was... So what did they end up doing with this project? So you got hired to do this. Yes, they took the tapes with them. Unfortunately, I was not able to save any footage for me because it was completely for them. And uh, I have, I've seen it once on, on TV when I came back to Europe. And they did a pretty good job with it, I have to say. I recognize my images very well. And, and uh, they, made like a, they made it look like a little bit different than just me saying dramatically they scratched. You know, you know mm -hmm. how TV is. They had to produce something that was interesting to see. So they produced something that was interesting to see. But they never had the final finish line because obviously the guys didn't make it all the way. You know? So after that journey, you, you, you end up back home. Yes, I ended up back home. In, and in, in in Germany? In Luxembourg. Okay. And when I arrived home, uh, it was a, this journey was a, a life-changing event for me. I went home, and the first thing I told my mom when I got back home, I said, I'm going to back to Alaska. And she looks at me and said, son, is that what you want to do? Then go. And that's what I did. I packed up all my gear, my studio, everything I had. It was 1,700 pounds of equipment. And I went to Cargo Lux the big cargo company. I actually shot video for those people those days. And these guys absolutely fantastically flew me back there for free with my equipment. It was fantastic. They landed me in Seattle and I was there in Seattle. I remember I spent almost a week in Seattle trying to find a cargo to make it to Alaska. And the luck of the draw wanted that. That's why I'm always positive in life because if you keep on pushing, you will find the door that will open. And that's how I got a company that, that flew me then from Seattle to Alaska. And uh, I spent 10 years there. Uh, my first six months, uh, I didn't have a wallet full of money. So my first six months, I spent it in a motel. A Dutch guy that owned this motel. I was, paying, I was paid with food and, and board because I was shoveling the roof, the snow off the, the snow roof. The snow off the roof. Yeah. So that was my first, let's say, departure in this thing. And then slowly, slowly, I shot my first wedding and then my second and then other things and events. And then slowly, slowly, I made myself. In what part are you living there in Alaska? What's the name of the town? The name of the first town was Big Lake, Alaska. Big Lake? Big Lake, yeah. It's, it's right next to a big lake. That's why it's called Big Lake. Okay. And, and then after that, I moved to Wasilla which is the hometown of Sarah Palin, if you know Sarah Palin. As a matter of fact, we became great friends when I, when I started producing a newscast in that town. And that newscast stayed on the air for 10 years. Yeah, it was called Valley News. Tell me about that journey with Valley News. That journey was another fantastic journey of people that say, if you don't, if you don't try it, it's not going to happen. And the way that journey started is, again, very strange. I was watching television one night and I saw this show called The Sunny Day Show. The Sunny Day Show. Yes. And uh, it was like a country music show <laughs> with a couple of guys coming there with guitars and playing music. And this host with a hat looking like a cowboy, well, his name was Sunny Day. That's why it was called that way. And he was, uh, it was pretty, um, how can I say this without 
I want to be polite. It was, it was very basic, very, uh, very basic. I mean, even the light were not even existing on the studio practically. And, and, and at the end of the show, there was a phone number there to, to propose talent. So, of course, me, the way I am, <laughs> I just went in the front door and I called the guy. And strangely enough, he answers. And it was him on the phone. And I say, sir, I watched your show and uh, I'm a producer. I come from Europe. I've been here a little bit. And uh, I would like to propose to help you to make this show better. And funny enough, the guy didn't just send me flying a kite. He just said, sure, why don't we make a meeting tomorrow? We talk. And so that's how we met. I went to see him and he, he decided to let me produce, if you want, or co-produce uh, the next show of the next week. It was once a week on Saturdays. And uh, I did. I installed my lights, my mics, my table, uh, my cameras, uh, everything that I had with me. And we produced a, a much, much improved show on the week after. So much that the producers of the television station start calling in and saying, hey guys, what happened? Something happened here. Did you win the lottery or something like that? And no, it was just the fact that I brought in a little bit of experience that this guy didn't have behind the camera. The switching was smoother, the, the, the angles of the camera were better, the sharpness was there, the light was there, the sound was there, everything was better. What, about the, what about the talent? Did that get better? That's not, that was not in my control in those days. He controlled the talent, so I could not change the talent. And, um, and people start calling in. It was very impressive. You see, this is a small town, but it's a small town of about 70,000 people. So the calls start coming in and, and they were all positive. And, and he went like, whoa, this is amazing. After one show, it was amazing. It's like from zero to a hundred in, in two seconds, you know? And uh, so he, he kept me on, he promised me a salary and uh, we kept on going. And, uh, and fortunately, <laughs> like life always is, after six months, he disappeared. The show aired one evening on Saturday, and the day after when we were supposed to come together for the next production, everybody was there except him. And uh, apparently, he disappeared. It's the owners of the station was a very nice couple that uh, looked at me and says, by the way, he's six months behind with the payment of the half hour show. And I look at them and say, oh, okay. And everybody looks at each other and they start turning red. And so the owner of the station said, what are we going to do now? Uh, next Saturday, I have a half hour that's empty. We have to do something. So knowing me the way I was, I said to, to the guy, I said, listen, Jeremy. Jeremy was his name. Mm -hmm. I said, listen, Jeremy, you leave it at me. I will have a show for you next Saturday, no matter what. What about a host? What about? I said, don't worry. I will have a show. I guarantee it. And if I don't, then the hell with it. But I will have one. And sure enough, I run to town. And uh, I found the anchor and I found the weatherman and I found the sports person and I found everybody I needed to find between Sunday and Saturday. Yeah, I know it's insane, but that's what happened. Yeah, that, that's insane. Yes. And, um, and it would have been easier today because we could have done it at home with the computer. But those days, the tape had to be recorded and you had to be run into town 45 miles physically, down the road. Yeah. yeah, physically, to be able to air at 6 o'clock on Saturdays. We are here. We are ready to go. And on Saturday, 6 p.m., Channel 5 has a show to air. 
and the show was not called the Sunny Day Show anymore. It was called, those days we called it the Spirit of Alaska because it was really the Spirit of Alaska. That's a nice name. Yeah. And we had it on for a little bit. And then as we had it on, it was only once a week. For me, it was a little weak. I said to me, we work so hard for a half hour show once a week. Why don't we try to do something better than this and turn it into a newscast? And we did. We, I met the news anchor and then I met, like I said, I, I got these guys all together, excited to do this, and we did. We, we started our show, we called it Valley News. I made a pilot and the pilot went to the station and the station loved the pilot. They said, wow, it's really cool, let's do it. The, the luck of the draw has wanted that when we produced the pilot, there was a train wreck in Talkeetna at the base of Mount McKinley, a train wreck that derailed and I had a friend of mine with a piper, he flew me up there and I had some awesome aerial footage out of the plane shooting this train wreck, you know. Those days I didn't have a drone, so I have to have a pilot with a plane. So we did, and the footage was fantastic. It was really great, exceptionally great. And we did it on, and we put it on, and after a while the people in town just started living. They had a, a public relation, they had kids in school, sports, weather, Everything about the town itself that was not with Anchorage because it was hours away from Anchorage, you know. So Channel 2 News, CBS, NBC, all those guys, they were taking care of the big city, but we were taking care of this little valley called the Matanuska Valley. And it was great. The people accepted it. They took it like their own and they grew with us. They sent us ideas. They sent us kids to do PSAs. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And we did it. And after a few months, we tripled the airtime. From once a week, we went three times a week. And it stayed on for, for 10 years. And uh, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And what's even more amazing is, since I left there, nobody has ever copied it. Nobody has ever produced, again, something like that. What was your decision to leave? Well, that's a, a bit of a complicated situation because it was not my decision to leave. It was... Uh, it was the opposite political area that threw me out, if I have to be honest. Yes. Um, it was not easy, actually. Um, it was pretty, pretty tough because, um, yeah, it was not easy. It was not easy at all because I had a, a wife at that time and I had a daughter that was born already and another one that was on the way. And um, they threw me out. They did. They just kicked me out. You want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. I have no fear. I, uh, truth is what is truth. And what happened is uh, I, uh, I was driving down the road and um, I found a wallet, what appeared to be a wallet. So I stopped for it, picked it up, and there was a cell phone with it, one of those brick phones like the old days, you know. And um, as I picked it up, I was on my way to do something. I said, what am I going to do with this now? I, there was money in the wallet. There was... So I, I just kept going a little bit down the road and I saw a cop, an Alaska State Trooper. I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give it to him. That's his job. They can take care of it. And I go do my thing. So I stopped. And every state trooper knew me then uh, because of the news. So he just, but for some strange reason, this guy asked me for my license. So I gave him my license. And when he passed my license, the microphone answered. And I will never forget that. And it said... Um, yeah, he's wanted by the INS for a hearing in Seattle that he did not appear. 
And I said, what? I was stunned. I was floored. I said, that is impossible. I never got any papers to go to any Seattle hearing, you know. And, um, yeah, well, he took me in. And the day after, he, they, they kicked me out. It took 24 hours. 24 hours and I was gone. My life was changed forever. Why did they kick you out? I don't know. I think because I was doing too much of the right thing. I think because I, sh I ruffled a few feathers in the political world on the, on the wrong side for them, of course, because I was defending people like, uh, like Sarah Palin. But, but I was not really defending because my, my stories were always very balanced. Uh, Republicans, Democrats, we always interviewed both sides very fairly. We never really gave one because legally you can't do that. You can't give more airtime to one. You have to give it equal. So when the election came along, we were responsible of Sarah Palin's first election practically to become mayor, you know, on the city council. And uh, uh, there was other Republicans there. But what is very interesting is this thing went to court. And uh, I had 26 representatives of the state of Alaska from senators to representatives come and defend me. And the judge didn't change his mind. For some reason, my paperwork that I filed when I got there disappeared for some reason. And they couldn't be found. And of course, my biggest mistake was I didn't copy these papers when I sent them in. I should have. Since then, I learned my lesson. But now it's done, so it's done. So my, my life was completely shattered on the 8th of August, 2000. And uh, that so was So were you a legal citizen of the USA? Just like I am today, here. I am back because they, are, they said that once they deported me, they said that I cannot re-enter for 10 years. So it took 13 years, actually. So when you say you're kicked out, you weren't kicked out of the house? No, 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 no. You weren't kicked out of the town? No, they were kicked out of the country. Out, gone. When you see all, how many Guatemalans and Mexicans and other people are here today, and, and it took them for 24 hours to kick me out. So I must have been a very important person, let me tell you that. So, um, yeah, anyway, I, I was gone. And uh, for 10 years, I couldn't re-enter, nothing to do. So actually, it took more than 10 years because it took exactly 17 years to come back. So you had to pack up all your stuff. I didn't pack up anything. They kicked me out just the same way. I didn't, I, I didn't, they didn't even give me any clothes. They took me the same way. They took me on the road. I was in my jumpsuit of work, and they kicked me out. That's it. I didn't pack up anything. I was, I was almost not allowed to go home and say goodbye to my wife and kids. And because the guy that drove me to the airport was a nice guy, he actually stopped at home that I can say goodbye to my wife and kids. Tell me what that was like. That was horrible. Just imagine yourself. Imagine. You have a daughter that's two years old, you have another daughter on the way, you have a wife that's pregnant with a daughter of two years, and you get deported just like that, without having done anything wrong, without having done any criminal mischief, nothing. Just like that, boom, taking out of your life. Did you grab anything with you? Did you take anything? My laptop. You? Your laptop. And that's it. What did your wife say? What could she say? They were, everybody was crying. Everybody was, the cop was even crying, believe it or not. It was pretty hard. It was a pretty hard deal, and it was done. There's nothing I could do. I, I, I asked. I get it. They put you on a plane and go, yes. see you? Absolutely. Who, Absolutely. who pays for the flight? The government did. I'm telling you, it was, it was amazing. And, and I know things now that I didn't know then, but now when I applied for this, green card that I have now here, apparently they had, they had an investigation going on. And apparently the lawyer that did the investigation found out 
that in Alaska, some Democratic people did everything possible to get rid of me. And they did. So they had like political reasons oh, why to get you out of there. Absolutely. Because we were doing too much of the right thing. I don't have the power Trump has and all the others have to, to fight this. So I, I, I couldn't fight anything. I just stayed back and took it. That's it. So tell me what it was like. You, you get back to where? Luxembourg. You step off the plane. I step off the plane. I call my nephew, comes, picks me up. My mom was happy to see me, of course. She hasn't seen me for so long. My sisters was happy to see Everybody was happy to see me, but I was not there for a vacation. I was there for a long stay. I stayed there 17 years before I could return. Back so, in your hometown? Yes, back in my hometown. Okay. What did you do for those 17 years? Well, I, as I, a video producer. Well, as a video producer, unfortunately, because all of my equipment was in, in Alaska, obviously, I didn't have anything with me in Europe, absolutely nothing. And uh, so my first job, I worked for an electrician company because I'm an electrician out of school. Electricity was my thing. So I went back to work as an electrician. And then uh, after working for an electrician, I worked, uh, I continued working like that for, for a few years. And then, um, and then I, um, what was after that? Um, oh yeah, no, I continued actually working as an electrician for quite, uh, from 2000 until 2003, I believe, or 2004. And then I opened the print business in Main Street, a printing business design, you know, uh, in design, Photoshop, etc. Printing business, T-shirts, cups—you know, the, the typical printing business—and that's where slowly, slowly, with the money I made, I start buying equipment again to get back into video production. So, video was always on your mind. Oh, absolutely, time. absolutely. That the video is what saved my life all the time, no matter what. So, I got back into video business with this printing business. It was called Digital World at that time, and um, I had a crew of people working there, and we did good. We we advanced. We did well, and then. Uh, and then uh, 2000, uh, I don't remember the date now exactly, but what happened is my wife that was, my ex-wife that was that time in Alaska with my kids flew to Luxembourg and lived, we lived together there until 2007. And then 2007, she decided to pack up the kids and leave me, which she did. So that was the second failure in my life, I guess. And... Um, and so I, I, there's nothing I could do. I mean, how can I visit my kids if they are 22,000 miles away in Alaska? There was no it was impossible. Impossible. First of all, because financial. Secondly, it was too far. And thirdly, I, didn't have, I couldn't get in the country. I, I was not allowed in the country. So, yeah, so life goes on. And uh, there goes uh, my single life again. And from 2007 until 2000. 13, I was basically much alone. And then in 2013, I'm meeting this person that was in America, but flew to Europe for a trip. We met, we kind of hit it off, and we decided to get together. And at, in the end of the year of 2013, we got married in Luxembourg. She flew back here. I stayed back there because I couldn't. But then when she flew here, she applied for me for a green card because she says, I have a husband. I'd like to have him with me, obviously. And um, I had to wait two and a half years to get my green card. Yeah. So two and a half years I waited, and then I finally got my green card. And then 
in October of 2017, I, I put foot on American soil again, and I've been here ever since. But after the electrician job, I, and after the, the video job, and after the printing job, I worked for a fantastic guy driving uh, buses for handicapped people and people with, with needs. And so that was a very great experience for me to, to witness what certain people can't do that you and I do easily, you know. And so it was not easy. That was a very two and a half years of, uh, of eye-opening experiences, carrying these people around, driving them with wheelchairs, tighten them into the bus, uh, make sure nothing happens to them. It was not easy. It was, uh, it was an eye-opening experience for me, but a great experience that I really appreciated. And so here I am now, uh, trying to do video production in America, which slowly, slowly it's coming, but then this corona crap hit, and that blocked everything because my project of traveling the 49 states with the RV has a big stop there. 